Sleep when the baby sleeps, they said. Make sure that they have a full tummy and they will sleep better, they said. Well, as many parents know, sleep is one of the most elusive pursuits of all time and is also among the most topical and one of the most Googled topics searched by new parents. But have you ever stopped to consider that your toddler's nutrition might actually affect their sleep? For most toddlers, food makes their world go round. Whenever there's food around, you can guarantee they want a piece of the action. But did you know that broken and restlessness in sleep can often be linked to diet, including food allergies or intolerances? Hello, I'm Elkie Pascoe, founder and CEO of Little Oak, and welcome back to this edition of This Little Life, an impromptu and lively discussion diving into the big and little issues of parenting and beyond. This episode, we are going to explore how nutrition can positively impact toddler sleep, as we'll examine the sleepy foods that are high in nutrients and might actually, in fact, help your little one sleep longer and better. Today, I am joined by one of Australia's leading sleep experts, Kelly Martin. She is the mother of three daughters and is a certified sleep consultant who changed her career once her second daughter was born. So Kelly, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there today very excited to hear about how they can help their toddler or their ch- child sleep better. I know I wish I'd known you when my children were a bit uh, were a bit younger. But tell me this, how did you get into sleep consulting? Uh, so as you touched on before, it was one of my daughters. So my first gave me a elusive introduction to parenthood and made me a little bit oblivious there. Um, she was quite an easy child. She slept really well from quite a young age, dare I even say it, six weeks. Um, and so I didn't really understand sleep and I winged it with little knowledge um, and it turned out okay. I wasn't under the illusion that the second child would be that easy. I was I was well aware our friends had had children um, at that point, a couple of friends, um, and so I saw that there were sleep struggles and knew that Izzy might probably that bit more unicorn-like, um, but my second crashed me down into reality a little too hard. Um, so we, we call her Evil Evie. Um, she's my firecracker and her sleep was difficult from the get-go. So she was a 20-minute catnapper. So we all know and dread the catnaps, but, you know, most people are hoping for at least the 40-minute mark. The fact that she made 20 minutes um, was a really long day, um, especially with a toddler. Um, so I found it really difficult. I didn't understand sleep. I didn't know what she needed. I didn't know how to support her. Um, and ultimately that sort, you know, it helped me to seek extra support on why this was so difficult. So when you were at the height of that with little, I can't bring myself to say it before, Evie. Um, <laughs> when Evie was at that point where she was only sleeping 20 minutes, what did you seek help yourself at that point? Yeah, so I first um, came across a sleep consultant when I was around four months of age um, and I attended like a little uh, mother's group type thing. It was a um, just a, a social setting coffee group, um, come along and just sort of hear what I have to say. At that point, in all honesty, I wasn't really ready to change. I still felt like I knew better and that I could conquer this on my own, um, but I got some great insight. Um, it wasn't until I hit six months that I really went, 
this isn't working for us. Um, those catnaps she hadn't grown out of, it had started to result in some really frequent night waking there. Um, and that's when I really looked to go, hey, I can't continue this. This isn't working. Um, and so I reached out and had um, someone come to the house and help me. And it really helped, obviously, her sleep better. Um, but it also really sparked an interest for me of like, wow, like this knowledge needs to be said to more people and to remove that fear of sleep coaching should be a last resort and rather a tool in your parenting belt. It always got me thinking, why are some children better sleepers than others? So the research shows that children sleep in the first three months of life, so essentially where they have that initial opportunity to lay some sleep foundations is around 50% nurture and 50% nature. So reality, you don't get to choose whether you have a good sleeper or a bad sleeper in bunny ears there. Um, so it really comes down to, for some children, they just have a really easy start to life. Um, for example, they don't have colic or reflux or allergies or intolerances. And these are the kids that you can literally just wrap them up, put them down, they fall asleep really easily. And so that just tends to kind of like follow them type thing. Um, whereas when you've got a child that is really marred by things like, you know, allergies, intolerances, reflux, colic, oral ties, they just lose that opportunity. Um, you know, it's been marred by pain. And even as they move through and the parents are able to resolve these issues, because the child doesn't know like that sleep is good, essentially, um, they don't just go, oh, yay, there's no pain now. I'll sleep better. They just don't know what, what good sleep is, or they might have a bad association with sleep because every time they lay down, their reflux played up. So therefore, even though their reflux is under control now, they still don't associate sleep as a good thing because it was quite traumatic for them um, or quite painful for them to start with. So this is why I see that these children do tend to need more support developing healthy sleep foundations um, is that they don't have a good experience with sleep um, compared to you and I, who, of course, know sleep is amazing. No, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we exist on no sleep is my philosophy. But I, I got to a point where I was like, well, even if I get an hour, that's a good thing. Let's start with zero and we get one. It's, it's, a, good, it's, a, it's a good outcome. So tell me, what is, um, in terms of obviously 50% nurture for, you know, 50% nature, at which point do you think do should parents get help if they think they've got, a, a, you know, a troublesome sleeper? I always have the philosophy, um, it's not a problem unless it's a problem for you. And so this really comes down to what is workable in your situation might not be workable in my situation. What right. might be workable at four months for me isn't workable at two months for you. What was workable for my first child doesn't necessarily help me with my second child. So I really think it is up to the parents and the family to decide how is this working for us. Um, the second factor is always I do respect the fourth trimester um, and that is a sort of transition from womb life to room life. So I don't believe you can, well, I never believe that you can create any bad or wrong sleeping patterns, but I really believe that that first 12 weeks of life, 
You need to have that transition from womb life to room life and get to know your individual baby. And, you know, you've never parented this child before. Even if you have parented before, it's not that individual child. Um, so I'm really quite respectful of doing what you can in the first 12 weeks. You can absolutely lay good sleep foundations from birth, but that is not sleep coaching. That is just being aware of things like age appropriate awake times or how to protect your baby's startle reflex, like all of those sort of what we consider small things, but can actually really help a baby to replicate that fourth trimester. And what does, what does in your mind, what is there, should I say, an ideal sleep pattern or routine for, for children? So children we know thrive on routine and consistency. We as humans thrive on routine and consistency. Even people that say, you know, I like to just throw caution to the wind and I wing it, they would still have a certain predictable rhythm in their daytime. Okay. Um, it's mm -hmm. why as much as, you know, during the day, during the week, we need to get up at a certain time for work. Um, and then on the weekend, of course, we're able to sleep in and our body's like, nah, here's the fire alarm at 6am. Um, <laughs> so we know that rhythms help our body and that allows our child to get a predictable daily function. Remember, it's all about trying to balance their hormones so that you don't have an overtired child at the end of the day. We know that when children are overtired, they release adrenaline. When they release adrenaline, they move their bodies into that fight or flight or freeze mode. And this mm -hmm. makes the going to sleep hard, but it makes staying asleep 10 times harder. Really? I didn't realize. So if you're, if you're in that sort of adrenaline phase, getting them to bed, but you get them to sleep, are they more, so what you're saying is they're more likely to have a, a, a restless night sleep? Absolutely. So we all wake oh, six to eight times overnight. So there's nothing wrong with night waking. Nobody, whether they are a baby, a toddler, a teenager, an adult, a grandparent, nobody sleeps through the night. But for you and I who have, you know, well-rested sleep, we get lovely gentle ebbs and flows. So as we come into the lighter sleep phases, every two to four hours overnight, we may or may not um, remember those small arousals there. We may simply change position and go back to sleep. Other times we may be awake for a little while, we might grab a drink of water. Like it's just the fact that we do it in silence. We don't feel the need to wake anyone and be like, hey, I'm awake. Are you awake? Um, we just go back to sleep. Um, so, but our children that are overtired, instead of getting those gentle ebbs and flows, they get these spikes. And so what they do is they go from zero to hero in a millisecond and they wake up and their body wants to be asleep, but it can't. Um, they're often, because they're overtired, they've often had poor day sleep. They often have a really strong reliance on an external support to fall asleep. And so their body's like, where is X, Y, and Z? I need to be asleep, but I don't know how. So mm -hmm. it just makes things a lot harder for them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when I was a first time mum with, with Olive, who was a desperate sleeper, uh, it was always the, you know, sleep begets sleep, which in so many ways used to just give me so much anxiety because I couldn't get her to sleep in the first place. So how did I expect her to get more sleep if I couldn't get her to sleep? Um, what is, you know, is there any truth to that? And, you know, what is the impact on children if they're not getting enough sleep? Oh, I absolutely believe that sleep promotes sleep because it does get that 
I guess when you look at hormone levels, we all start the day kind of at baseline and we gradually go up. Cortisol, which is our stress hormone, is essential for keeping us alive. So we all need to have some level of cortisol in there. But what's supposed to happen with our day sleeps is they provide us a bit of a plateau. They provide us a bit of a platform to like regenerate and then slowly move up again. Now, if a child is having really poor sleep, if you think of it like a catnapping baby, they're essentially getting these little speed humps in the day and they're just going Mm -hmm. up, up and up. By the time they get to the end of the day, they're at the top of the mountain, they tip over the cliff and they release that adrenaline for that fight or flight. So the idea of trying to support day sleep in conjunction will have a positive impact at night um, because it means as they experience those gentle ebbs and flows through the night, they are more likely to roll over, get comfy and say, everything is as it was, I'm safe, I can go back into that next sleep cycle. And does that... um yeah, I mean, I, I find it, it, it feels like it, that continues right through until you're an adult. Like even now, I feel like I've nearly regressed back to being a child. I wake every two to four hours and I'm awake and I want to cry. Um, but um, in terms of um, obviously those external factors that, that, you know, that we talk about can either help a child sleep or not, what are some of those things? I mean, we're obviously going to sit here and explore food in a minute as one of those triggers that can, you know, impact how a child sleeps. What are the other ones that, that you know, are either helpful or a, they're a hindrance so, to, to a child getting to sleep and staying asleep? Absolutely. So we do sort of term them a bit more of like those positive sleep associations in terms of they're the things that we can do at the beginning of the sleep to support our child with predictability and familiarity. So something like using their swaddle or their sleeping bag not only helps to cue that sleep time is approaching, but it also ensures to me that my baby is going to be warm enough um, and that as they move around the cot, they're not going to wake from being cold like they would with a blanket um, because, you know, they've crawled up the top of the cot and you don't want to have to bring them back down and tuck them in firmly only to go for a little crawl again there. Mm -hmm. Um, There's things like your white noise is deemed as a positive sleep association because it's designed to play continuously as an external buffer so that if your child does surface from a sleep cycle and hear, for example, a dog barking, they're more likely to tune in and go, oh, no, that was just the white noise that I heard playing to go to sleep. I can go back to sleep there. So these are sort of deemed as your, I guess, more positive sleep associations. The ones that can be a hindrance um, come down to things like your rocking, holding, feeding, and in some circumstances, a dummy. And that's because they are parent controlled and Mm -hmm. a child can't rock themselves back to sleep. They can't feed themselves back to sleep. And again, this comes back to the research. So the research shows that sort of children that are heavily assisted to sleep with parental support there, there's around an 80% chance that they are going to struggle to put themselves to sleep for the rest of the night if this is the only tool in their toolkit. Right. So okay. they're rocked every nap, they're rocked every bedtime, they're rocked overnight. This does not mean rocking is bad or wrong. You can rock your child for one nap a day. You can rock them once at bedtime. You just don't want it to be their only resource of how to fall asleep because 80%, that's a, that's a pretty high statistic there um, that says, you know, 
they will tend to struggle with that re-entering of sleep overnight. Um, I explain it from an adult perspective. Would you be happy to go to bed tonight in your bed? Heck yeah, no problem. Would you like to wake two hours later and spend the rest of the night in your laundry and be told that's where you're sleeping for the night? It's still in the house. What's your problem? <laughs> you're laughing and going, my laundry isn't that decked out to sleep in. Um, fair call. Um, but again, it's a bit of an extremist example, but that's what's happening for our, our babies. We're like, I'll hold you. I'll give you that close proximity. I'll let you fall asleep in my arms, but then I want you to sleep on the mattress in that cot on your own for the next, you know, 10 to 12 hours overnight. And pup is kind of like, yeah, nah, I think yeah, I prefer option. I like that first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny as you talk. It's like, oh my gosh, I, you know, it, hindsight's such a wonderful thing. I'm thinking about, I've rocked Olive to sleep like yeah. literally all the time because it was like, this is just the easiest thing to do. And I'm sure there's lots of parents out there that just sort of just succumb to that anyway. Um, but uh, good point, probably not the best. The analogy there is is very, is a strong one. Um, I'm really, I'm really interested to understand now this association between between food and sleep and nutrition and sleep, um, two very things very close to to, to my heart. Um, so, what are, what are your what is your advice? What are your thoughts on the impact of food um, and a, and a, a, a baby and a toddler's uh, ability to sleep? Absolutely, there is a huge correlation because if you think about it, sleep isn't individual. It's not standalone. So there's three main components when you sort of look at child development there. And that's where you're going to look at sleep is one component, food is one component, and development is one component. If you think about it, a hungry baby is not going to sleep well. A baby that's not sleeping well is not going to feed well. Um, So there is that huge correlation between optimal nutritional intake. Um, We can't force our babies to eat. We can't force our babies to sleep. But there is directly a correlation there with how can we support our baby um, and optimally get that nutrients into them during the daytime in order to work towards reducing um, slash night weaning, um, depending on number one, what you're comfortable with, and number two, what is developmentally quite appropriate there. Um, mm-hmm. Because I Everyone wants the elusive sleeping through the night, um, but you don't need to always night wean. You sometimes just need to have the right balance. Um, Another sort of analogy to look at is if you are having too much intake of food overnight, you're going to reverse cycle. So you're going to have predominance of calories at night and you're going to really snack feed during the daytime. What sleep is designed for is to rest and digest. And so if you're having all of these little feeds overnight, your body's not going to get its priority time, which is to, you know, repair and rebuild the immune system, to transition short-term memory to long-term memory, to lock in those new neural synapses, to clear the waste from the body. Like we're not going to be able to do this if we're just focusing on break down that bit of milk, break down that bit of milk, break down that bit of milk. Um, Hence, they wake up feeling sluggish. They then can't eat well during the day because they're like, I'm not hungry. Um, And it can create a cycle. That's really interesting, isn't it? So what about then that makes me think about that, you know, they talk about the dream feed. what What are your opinions on a dream feed? I mean, we're talking about infants now. We will yeah. go to talk about toddlers shortly. Yeah. But from a baby perspective, what I mean, is the dream feed good or is it bad? It's not a bad thing. Personally, I'm not the biggest fan of them because I I just don't find in 
quite a number of babies there. Um, they work as effectively as we would like. So in the dream world, um, we would give a baby, you know, their dream feed in the earlier part of the night. So typically sort of prior to midnight, about the 10, 11 o'clock, and bub would either go through the rest of the night or they might have their second wake at maybe like 3 to 4 a.m. Um, so if I'm going to use a dream feed, we do that prior to six months of age. So if a dream feed is going to work best for a child, it'll be done so in that sort of three to six month um, timeframe there. So essentially it's completely normal for children to need um, generally between one to two feeds overnight until around that sort of seven to nine month mark. Generally from nine months plus, we can start to work towards the one to zero feeds And by 12 months plus, we're really working towards night weaning because we can be quite confident at 12 months plus that they can meet their nutritional needs throughout the daytime. And Mm -hmm. any supplementing overnight is likely to have that negative impact um, on their daytime calories because the body's kind of like, I got a safety backup, guys. I'm busy. I'm a toddler. Um, you know, I'll take these feeds overnight where there's like no distractions. Um, and then the parents deem it as fussy eating. And so they're like, I have to give them more. They don't eat well by day. Um, you know, that's like saying that like I went on a diet from nine till five and I was really good, but then I ate a block of chocolate, you know, at oh, night time. Oh, that's, oh no, that's me. That's, that's a daily occurrence. That's me. I, I can relate. <laughs> So, you know, you're never going to be able to take that optimal nutritional. You're never going to be able to lose that weight if you've constantly got that little little safety buffer or safety backup there. Oh, that's maybe what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought? Glad we've, had, glad we've had this discussion. Okay. <laughs> How'd your period done today? <laughs> so tell me this then, Kelly. If you've got, so I, if I've got a toddler, let's, you know, rewind a few years. I've got a toddler, not sleeping, just, you know, and I actually, the reason why this is pertinent is because we've got one of our um, beautiful mums in our team, Amber, whose son, Bodhi, is mm, nearly two years or so, um, or 18 months. But, Anyway, she's just got a sleep consultant in just yesterday because he's not sleeping. And, um, you know, if I'm her, let's say, and I come to you and I say, right, my son's 18 months, just not a great sleeper, never has been, what advice would you be giving to her? So it's always about looking at sleep from a holistic approach. So too many people jump the gun and they go straight to, you know, what set, what settling technique do I need to do? What sleep training do I need to do? And I'm very much of the opinion that sleep is holistic and we need to look at the 24-hour rhythm. So I'm always going to check what is that sleep environment? How is that set up conducive to sleep? What's going on with their nap timing and duration? Are they having too much day sleep? Are they having too little day sleep? What's the mm-hmm. timing and distribution throughout the day there? What's going on with those sleep associations? So what's working? What do we need to wean out? What's going on with milk and nutrition? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. how is this fitting in in the 24-hour rhythm? And then the final piece of the puzzle is what settling technique can we use to support our baby towards more independent sleep there? And that, of course, can be done in quite a variety of ways. You can consider the child's age, their sleep history, their temperament, your parenting style, the time frame that you're looking to achieve that. It's interesting that that's the last, the last thing is the, is the sleep, the settling technique, isn't it? But like you said, the first, the initial and the first thing is like, well, how do I 
actually, what do I need to do to actually just get them to sleep yeah. in, in the way they want? Yeah. And it's really sad because parents don't reach out for help because they're of the opinion like, I don't want to let my baby cry it out. And it's like, I don't even want to talk about your settling technique until I've looked at everything else. And number two, no sleep consultant, no decent sleep consultant ever works with cried out these days. It's so outdated um, Mm. that, you know, it's sad that parents still believe that that is like the only option. Like if I was going to tell you to do that, wouldn't you do that yourself? Like there, yeah, there's right. there's so much more that we can do to support and understand um, sleep and how it's working for this individual child um, to give them, you know, that that long-term solution and provide that exit strategy to leaving the room long-term. Mm. Okay. Let's dive a little bit deeper into this association between food and sleep. So what foods um, produce or help promote those sleep hormones? So that's absolutely going to be your foods that are rich in tryptophan. So tryptophan is known as a really good way to help our body produce melatonin. So melatonin Mm -hmm. is our sleep hormone. Serotonin is our daytime hormone melatonin is our sleep hormone. So tryptophan-rich foods can really help for our children um, to just optimally meet those needs there. So typical ones that come in there are going to be your poultry. So you've got your turkeys and your chickens, you've got canned tuna, you've got oats, you've got your nuts and seeds. Um, They're particularly things like your cashews and almonds. Bananas are really high in tryptophan. Um, Mm -hmm kidney beans, eggs, and of course, you've got your dairy products. So you've got your milks and your yogurts and that sort of thing. So all of those foods throughout your child's day, not necessarily just at night, um, can ensure a good balance, um, you know, of optimal nutrition there. And what about minerals? Because we obviously talk a lot about magnesium being kind of really good for promoting sleep in adults. Presumably that's the same for children. Oh, 100%. So, so what are those sort of the the minerals that you would and the foods that you would be recommending to parents to to uh, include into a child's diet? So you've certainly got your top four, which is your iron, your magnesium, your zinc, and your calcium. So iron needs in particular for the first two years of life, we have the highest iron need. So an average adult male needs eight milligrams a day. Now a child in the birth to two year framework needs 11 milligrams a day. So you can see that's actually a huge amount um, that they need. Um, Absolutely. And it's quite common that for the first six months, our iron needs are transferred in utero. So hence why poor pregnant mums become so darn anemic um, and struggle (laughs) because we literally give our bodies over um, to Mm -hmm. our babies there. So that's why the first six months we're kind of all good to go. They've, they've got that transfer. They've got that um, storage in, in from being transferred. So then we look at, that's actually why we start solids no later than six months of age is we can no longer meet their iron needs through milk. So whether that is breast or formula, that iron need is not going to be enough from six months onwards. Hence why we start to introduce our complementary foods there. Um, mm-hmm. It's also why... Um, you know, we can become a little bit more deficient over 12 months of age if we continue to have a very high milk intake. The tricky balance is that calcium needs are obviously important, particularly in toddlers, but too much calcium impedes the um, absorption rate of iron there. And 
though you can start to have this real imbalance um, within their diet there. That can, of course, further lead to fussy eating. We continue to up their milk going, you know, but they're not eating well, so I'll just keep giving them this. But it creates a catch-22 scenario. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because we did a podcast um, a good few months back now in uh, New Zealand with a professor of something or other from Massey University. I feel terrible. Dr. Bob Stewart was his name. Um, And he was talking about the importance of iron and the fact that goat milk actually has um, better bioavailability of iron than cow's milk or, you know, other sort of milk. So um, would you, do you agree with that? Oh, 100%. They always say that if we can get our milk sources, um, you know, goat's milk is always going to be the most gentle. They say it's the most um, breast milk-like or most mammalian-like. I don't know if I got that word Mm -hmm. quite right there. I think that's that's a word. I think that's a word. Um, Yeah, (laughs) so that's why they will encourage that sort of transition. We don't want things like um, typically your oat milk or your rice milks. They're also, um, they don't have as high a calcium rate. They have, they're too light um, as in they're a bit more diet-like. Um, they don't have yes. that full fatness in them. Um, mm-hmm. So certainly my preference if we're going to use um, formula is to use a goat's milk base there. Oh, well, thank you for that. That, that's, that's reassuring. <laughs> it, it actually yeah, it correlates really well because, yeah, they, they were 100%. It's also a lot more gentler on their tummies. Um, we weren't made to, um, you know, sort of have cow's milk. It's very heavy. It's very pasteurised. Um, it doesn't tend to sit as well with our tummies. Yeah. And tell me this, what is the um, impact of food allergies on children, toddlers um, and sleep? It's a really tricky one. It's one that um, allergies and intolerances are really hard because unlike um, an anaphylactic reaction where, of course, you can go and get um, a test done with your allergist and you can go, yep, you know, you're allergic to peanuts. Um, The problem with allergies and intolerances is often is trial and error. So it can be really difficult to pinpoint um, and it's why I encourage families to keep food diaries and reach out to a pediatric dietitian so that you can sort of break that down because your big things, um, you know, eczema is a huge one in saying like there is something wrong with the gut here. Um, so rather than just going and grabbing, you know, your steroid creams and being like, I can get rid of it, steroid creams have a relevancy because they can get on top of it ASAP but you need to deal with the root cause. And that's the same with Mm. your sleep coaching. If you've got gut digestive issues, then no amount of sleep coaching is going to overcome this. You need to get to the root cause. And if you think your child is in pain, we need to solve this before we look at sleep. Mm, That's really interesting, isn't it? So in terms of then, obviously, um, I mean, you hear so much about this, but if you were to say to a parent, listen, here is what a great day of eating looks like to promote better sleep, um, what would that look like? What are the, t- the top three or four things that you would be saying to a mum or a dad, try and get your child to eat this, it will go some way to help them with a better night's sleep? So the first thing I would look at is what is the balance of food? So Sometimes it is as simple as stripping their food back to not having too many snacks. So like stripping back to your breakfast, lunch and dinner and that snack, you know, morning and afternoon tea. You Mm -hmm. also want to really try and focus on where possible um, introducing a protein source 
into their diet. Um, an iron source, I should say. It doesn't need to be you know, a protein um, in terms of like uh, meat and chicken there. You want an iron source. So people don't realize how many different iron sources are available in terms of we can have our eggs, we can have our tofu, we can have our hummus dip. There's plenty of plant-based um resources or um, foods that we can offer our children that we don't have to feel like, oh, I'm not going to serve them a steak for breakfast. Um, fair call. Um, um, there's lots of iron-rich foods, um, sorry, iron-rich cereals um, that do have, you know, great sources in there in terms of like your kids' wheat bix. Um, you know, they've yeah. specifically formulated it that way. So an iron source in each meal would be optimal. Making okay. sure that you do have good slow-release complex carbohydrates there. And you do have good fats. Remember, babies, toddlers, they shouldn't be on a diet. Um, so you want to have that combination of good fats, good carbohydrates, and a good iron source there so that you can get the best balance of uh, blood glucose levels. You don't get that sugar crash there. Um, and so just being able to optimize their diet, it's not about them having to eat one food or a certain amount of food, um, especially when you look at toddler diet you want to look at that over maybe like a five to seven day span because toddlers eat you out of house and home one day and they eat like a sparrow the other day. And the next. Um, <laughs> yeah. Some toddlers eat, um, you know, heaps in the morning. Um, classic example is my third daughter. She eats a lot in her first half of the day. She literally eats air for dinner some nights. And I've accepted that. I know that she sleeps well, so she's clearly not hungry. And so it is my job as a parent to offer her dinner every night, but I need to trust her body that if she needs it, she'll take it. And if she doesn't, she's okay. Um, you know, I don't need to panic that she's not going to sleep through the night tonight because she only had three bites of dinner. Um, mm -hmm. Like we need to really trust our toddlers and allow them to make some decisions within my parent framework, a bit like sleep. You know, I can offer, I can set up the optimal sleep environment can't make you sleep. So same with toddler diet. I can offer the foods. I don't need to turn into a Michelin chef and, you know, bring out three different courses if you don't like one. Um, you know, your job is to provide the framework. Their job is to consume it. That's really good advice. And here is one thing for me, for my own personal <laughs> interest, because my children are notoriously bad for eating dinner and Olive being notoriously difficult. Uh, we'll sparrow eat and then she'll come back two hours later, literally the minute, you know, I've said, right, brush up and go, <laughs> I'm hungry. And I think, oh my God, no, the kitchen's closed. I'm sorry, we're done, no more. But she's like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. So at that point, that's um, my Evie. I try to give them fruit or something. What is the best thing? It, a, should I be giving her something there or is it a flat no? And if it's a yes, what kind of thing should I be giving her? I wouldn't necessarily say no because, you know, if they obviously are hungry, the difference is for me, and this is what I personally do in my family, is if you are hungry right now before bed, the offer is a banana. So we don't okay. offer fruit as in they're like, hey, I'll have raspberries tonight. I'll have blueberries. I'd like an apple, like, you know, where they kind of like, mm, this is a good deal. I can refuse dinner. And even though it's fruit, like I like fruit and I'll take like, you know, a fruit salad. Um, my go-to is there is a banana. As we've just discussed about tryptophan rich foods, bananas in there, um, the high, high in potassium. Um, so like it's a good sleep promoting food and it gives me that whole like, I've given you something 
So I've met your need, but I haven't opened up, um, I guess, that whole like, what would you like? I can prepare anything because I don't want you to go to sleep hungry. Um, you know, that that sort of conversation gotcha. and dialogue there. So it's always, yeah. you know, we've always got bananas on the bench um, and Evie did it to me just last night. Um, didn't want to eat all I did her um, and then came to me at seven o'clock and it's like, I'm starving. I won't be able to sleep tonight. My tummy will be rumbling and I'll wake up the whole house. Very dramatic. Um, here's your banana, you know. I, I actually think Olive and Evie perhaps are separated at birth. But anyway, um, Kelly, I can't. It's been such an interesting conversation. Thank you so much for all of that insight. You know, I know personally as a mom and I know all of my friends who are at different stages of motherhood, it, it, it tends to consume our conversation. Is this sleep or lack of sleep or what can we do to improve it? So I am sincerely hoping that uh, all the moms out there listening will find some value in today's discussion. So thank you, Kelly. It's been fascinating and I can't wait to uh, to have some further conversations around, um, you know, improving sleep for uh, for children around the world. So thank you for that. My absolute pleasure. <laughs> and to everyone out there, I sincerely hope you have gotten something out of today and that just by uh, there might be one or two things in our conversation today that might actually help you get a few extra Zs tonight for sleep. And as always... You can find more information and some tips from Kelly on our website, www.thelittleoakcompany.com. And as always, this episode of This Little Life is available on Spotify or any of your other favorite podcast platforms. Kelly, thanks so much again. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.